Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat about our guests with peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a PB at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. One way to keep turning up is to do a regular movement practice. I talk about this a lot, but I know many of you still have difficulty getting it integrated into your daily routine. To try and make it easier for you, I've put together a series of stretching movements in a single page PDF document, along with some video links, which you can download for free. If you'd like to get hold of a copy, please look for the very obvious link in the show notes. Eating disorders and disordered eating have long been a thing in endurance sports. The combination of disordered eating, amenorrhea and osteoporosis was known as the female athlete triad. But this is not an exclusively female issue and more recently we started using the term red S or relative energy deficiency in sport. Today my guest is Pippa Wolven, the founder of Project Red S, a collaborative initiative formed by a group of athletes, parents and partners whose lives have been impacted by the condition. They have three main aims, awareness, prevention and recovery. And today, Pip and I will be trying to cover each of these topics to help you have a better understanding and how you might be able to help athletes you train with, coach or support. So let's not waste any time and get cracking straight away with Pippa. Well, welcome to the show, Pippa Wolven from the Project Red S. So this is a project you were just telling me you started very recently, um, almost like the beneficiary of lockdown, if you like. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the good things to come out of lockdown. Um, I was on furlough from my regular job at the National Trust. And for ages, years even, I had been wanting to write about my experiences with this particular condition and just get some messages out there about sports culture and see if I could start a conversation or join a conversation and had never really found the time. Um, I was busy working. I was also running still and just was keen to maintain my own life balance. And furlough was the perfect opportunity. So I I seized it. um, And yeah, I'm lucky enough to call it my full-time job now. So uh, there has been a little bit more um, in the mainstream press in the last uh, couple of years about this. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Red S is relative energy deficiency syndrome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the S stands for in sport because. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. This is something that occurs among sports people, but also among regular exercises too. So I'm not sure whether that S will stick around for too much longer. Mm. And this was um, the successor really to the female athlete triad, which we, um, we I suppose, which we came to know. Uh, in more detail equally a few years ago didn't we um so maybe you can maybe you can tell us about your backstory so you mentioned that you were a runner um if if you're happy to um you know tell us how you became aware that this was something that you were um suffering from if you like and then what fueled your determination to to sort of uh, share this issue with the the wider population within sport, not not just athletes, of course, but coaches and what you call the supporters, the people who are part of that environment surrounding an athlete. 
Yeah. So as you say, I'm a runner. Um, I got into the sport around age 13 in the typical way via the school cross country. Um, loved it, just enjoyed the community side of things, um, the water fights after training, the <laughs> team trips to races, you know. Um, and I also enjoyed lots of other sports. So I had a pretty good balance of a range of interests and activities. And um, I started taking running a bit more seriously when I reached the English schools, which um was I guess a bit of a highlight in my early career and when I went to the University of Birmingham in the UK I decided to focus solely on running and just immerse myself in the club um, and that was brilliant it was a great gradual progression into uh, a more senior level of the sport and at that time I was um, qualifying for things like world juniors and also getting a few scholarship op opportunities from America um, but didn't feel that I was quite ready to take that step yet. Um, I was still maturing physically and emotionally and wanted to go to a British university first just to get that UK experience. Um, so two years into my degree, I reached a point where I felt ready to take that next step. I was able to put my degree on hold in Birmingham and transfer over to Florida State, which was one of the best NCAA mm. universities, um, quite a privileged to, to be able to go there um, for a full scholarship. And with that transition came a big increase in training volume, um, which I had prepared for over the course of two years in Birmingham. I'd very gradually increased my training load. Um, and I guess also there was a, a major difference in my support system over there. And I wasn't quite so prepared for that. I I guess I underestimated the importance of having a coach who has your best interests at heart and knows you and has watched you train over a number of years and really got to understand you as an athlete. Um, and then just having friends and family close by. So, yeah, it was a big difference. And I was approaching a, a time in life where I was starting to think more seriously about how I could take the next step to the elite level. Um, felt quite a lot of pressure to get the best out of myself while I was over there for a fairly short period of time, just two years. And so I kind of zoomed in on all of the things that I thought would make me the best athlete I could be. And mm. of course, part of that is body composition. And um, unfortunately, I didn't really have the guidance that I needed on that. And so started to gradually restrict my energy intake um, with the best intentions, just cleaning up my diet. Um, we bought into this team culture of clean eating in inverted commas, which mm. essentially surrounds cutting out anything non-essential, those snacks and extra portions of chips and chocolate that might be deemed as indulgent. And unfortunately, those those fuel sources were exactly what I needed in order to sustain my level of training. Um, and so pretty quickly, I found myself in this negative energy balance where I was expending more than I was um, in, in taking and ended up in a state of red S, which um, I had no idea about at the time. So what were the first signs for you that things weren't quite right? So the first physical signs were this sort of broad sense of fatigue. I had been an athlete for a long time by that point. I was familiar with this general training fatigue that you would experience and come to expect as a long distance runner. But this was something a little different. It 
kind of filtered into my everyday life. Um, mm. I just felt not right. And I couldn't really define that at the time. Um, I was getting more illnesses and just coughs, colds, infections that shift or perhaps returned in a short space of time. Um, some little niggles that I never really used to suffer with before. I was always quite robust um, in terms of my physiology. And then we figured out that I had low iron levels. And I thought, well, actually, that would explain these symptoms um, that I was having. And so kind of dismissed the idea that there could be anything else wrong until um, I had some iron injections to boost my iron levels and they worked for a short period of time, but we didn't ever really explore the underlying issue. Why mm. I was able to, you know, get enough iron in my diet. It was purely because I wasn't eating enough. Um, and instead I sort of, yeah, I dismissed the thought that I was doing anything wrong from a nutritional perspective. So let me, let me just go back a bit. So um, you talk about body composition. Was there an external pressure around body competition, composition or was it this sort of internal team thing? Um, or was there really any pressure at all to be, you know, if I'm lighter, I'll run faster? Was it just a, a question of trying to think, well, if I, if I eat really clean food, that's going to improve my performance? And, it all, and that, that, that combined with the extra volume of training and being in a slightly different environment and perhaps not having friends and family who would notice change, it, it just all came together and, and snowballed on. Exactly. I'd say it was a combination of all three things. There was definitely an expectation to look the part when you were in that elite environment. Mm -hmm. um, our team took racing weight and clean eating pretty seriously. Um, and I didn't want to let the team down by not buying into that culture. Mm. And I also thought that that was what was expected of me to make it to the next level. Um, and I, I hadn't seen any role models to sort of convince me otherwise so yeah mm. it was a combination of the three mm. because often we hear that there's uh, you know we hear things about pressure from coaches don't we um particularly around developing athletes um more often than not it's females but i think we should we should point out at this particular juncture that this isn't a, an exclusively female issue is it really it can affect males and female athletes and we need to make sure that we remember that as we're going through this conversation and we're not talking about females exclusively um but often we hear about coach pressure or a sort of you know those little paper cut comments that keep happening like oh um your, your bum's a bit big in those or this vest doesn't fit you you know maybe if you lost a bit of weight it would fit better or um, you do know don't you that um, athletes in your in your race category typically come under 60 kilos or something all those little things that are perhaps meant as off the cuff not necessarily um barbed comments but they they're received like that and and that's i think something i think we should talk about later is how a comment might not be be meant but it's the way it's received that causes the problem absolutely yeah i think it's a culture in sports that in order to win you need to be thin or you know there's so many myths that we could buy into and pitfalls um that surround racing weight and body weight in general so yeah exactly those comments what was um I'm trying to put into I'm trying to put into perspective here the timeline with the development of social media as well. When you were in Florida, um, was Instagram a thing then, or was it just developing? I guess Facebook would have been a thing, but um, these these apps have taken off so quickly, and I don't want to overage you either in this conversation. But where were they in people's sphere of thinking then? Because it, it 
social media can be so destructive to an athlete's mental health, can't they, as we're hearing about in, in, in a much wider sport than athletics now? Mm, absolutely. Yes, there was um, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, um, loads of forums that were quite critical of athletes and their body weight. Mm. Um, and for sure, they played a role in perpetuating this idea that athletes need to look or eat or train a certain way. Um, mm. And now I think we're seeing a shift towards a, a more body positive movement and reflecting athletes of different body weights and different physiques and builds. Um, but back then there really was this just one specific look for a distance runner. And I didn't necessarily fit that initially. I think also um, you made a really good point about ch- changing environments. I mean, that's that's a huge stress in itself, isn't it? I mean, we know that exercise and, in, and endurance exercise particularly is a major stressor in people's life, but moving to a different country, a different climate, a different environment, different education system, those, uh, th- those would be stresses on their own, but you've taken about four or five and rolled them all into one. Mm, yeah, I think, as you said earlier, there really was a sort of snowball effect and all these um, factors contributed. And when you move to another country, your routines change. You know, back in, in England, I was used to having pudding straight after my main course. And that was just the culture of my family growing up and my friends at British University. But mm. in America, that wasn't so much the norm. And just little things like that make such a difference in combination. I think also um, when when you're burning through a lot of calories in your sport and you you said you were still, you know, you were reaching maturity then as a female, but your body's still growing. So then you need you need nutrition and calories to support that. You just can't get enough calories in eating, eating uh, spinach and um, and even sweet potatoes. Can you sometimes you need to have some chocolate or some ice cream um, that's calorie dense to, um, just just to meet your daily calorie needs? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, when I was starting to suffer from low energy availability, I was still eating three meals a day and Mm. snacks before and after training. But it was just the quality of that food was so refined. It was so, in inverted commas, clean that it wasn't providing me with those calories that I needed that I could have got from desserts and extra chips and carbs, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, aside from the fatigue, fatigue, then did you notice any other physical symptoms? Um, did did you notice any other things like you know that your mind was a little cloudy with the fatigue as well, and you weren't sort of your executive function wasn't quite as good as it used to be? Mm, yes. So psychologically, I had started to become much more preoccupied with food. I was, I did change in my personality quite significantly, but would never have noticed it at the time because, again, it was almost considered the norm of being an athlete at that level was you were obsessed with training and, and nutrition and being the best you could be. But this was another level and it was really difficult for me to think rationally and put things into perspective at times um and then physically i just felt different i had lost weight um initially at least and i thought that that had provided this initial performance boost which perhaps it had and quite quickly that wore off and i really started to suffer from this chronic type of fatigue that yeah infiltrated every element of daily life um and then I just just kept getting ill and injured and Mm. um some hair thinning and poor skin and low moods and it was just this big picture um 
and in isolation, none of these things seemed too significant um, or worthy of further investigation. But actually, if we had looked at the, the whole picture, I would have reached a diagnosis far sooner. There may be other people listening who are thinking, oh, well, I recognise some of those symptoms. In terms of red S generally, I mean, the symptoms are going to be unique for each individual, aren't they, dependent on their circumstances and their gender and everything else and their training levels. Um, what are some, some of the common symptoms that people might experience if, if, if this is something they're going through that you haven't mentioned were affecting you and perhaps which might make them just pay a bit more attention and, and investigate a bit further? Yeah, so for females, um, a big red flag is abnormal or missing menstrual cycles. And often this can be masked by taking something like the contraceptive pill, which is common still. Um, and that is often confused for a natural menstrual cycle when in fact it is masking um, the absence of one potentially. And so if a female notices any change to their menstrual cycle in terms of duration, um, length or heaviness, they need to be aware that that is a red flag. Um, and then for males, they can have hormonal changes as well. That could look like loss of morning erections, um, low testosterone, which might manifest in poor adaptation to training or under recovery or just this general sense that something isn't quite right. Um, and I think a lot of athletes can relate to that sort of mysterious feeling of not being able to define what's wrong, but knowing that there's something lurking. And often we're used to pushing past that and working hard and suffering through some level of pain and discomfort. Um, but pretty quickly you learn to realise that that isn't very healthy. Well, and as well as that loss of that morning erection thing you talk about, there's also the low sex drive that's probably associated with low testosterone as well, isn't there? So, um, you know, you might you might have one symptom without the other, or you might have both, which would probably be uh, even more disturbing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one thing that we don't talk about enough um, for the males is that symptom, which I think a lot of guys probably care about. And if they don't know that it's associated with red S, mm. then they might not pick it up so soon. But also um, bone stress injuries are very common. Ah. Um, yes. Yeah, this is something that I didn't experience for the first few months, if not years of suffering with low energy availability. But often that's the first sign that an athlete might have low bone density caused by um, red S. So it, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? These this bone stress injuries, athletes might be thinking, well, if I run a lot, you know, the bones in my feet are very small. There's a lot of pounding there. And, you know, maybe it's... Uh, maybe it's par for the course that I'm going to get those. And, and maybe that's right. Maybe if you've got, if you've got technique that's sort of not particularly brilliant and you're landing in a particular way, but when you start getting stress fractures in the, the heavier duty bones, like the shins or um, worse still, you hear about an athlete who has a stress response, which is an early stage of a stress fracture or a stress fracture in the hip. Um, then we're really talking about something quite serious, aren't we? Because if, if they've not if they've not had a fall and landed on that, and it's just caused by the impact of running, these are the these bones are the ones that support our whole skeleton. So, you know, if they're if they're not strong enough to support um, functional exercise and and sporting exercise, then that's a big problem. Exactly. Yes, and I think in the past things like stress fractures have almost been normalised and. Mm. Um, as you say, seen of, 
seen as part of the course, but they're significant signs that something isn't right. And I think running is technically classed as a low weight um, bearing exercise because of the movement in a continuous forward direction. And that's why um, med- medical experts and physios would always recommend some form of strength and conditioning to help develop that bone density. Um, but also nutrition plays such an essential role in protecting bone health. Mm-hmm. I know um, I've talked to cycling coaches who have told me about, particularly with young female athletes, um, they're they're on this sort of body, you know, power to weight type of target that they've got. So obviously they're trying to put the power up, but they're also trying to keep the body weight low. They're sitting on a bike all day. So there's no real impact there, no bone loading. And they're encouraged to get the lift if they're staying in a hotel. So they don't walk up the stairs because that tires legs out for riding the next day. So there's absolutely no eccentric or concentric loading on the, on the, the muscles of the lower body. Um, and then they're getting these, um, they're getting these stress fractures, um, so that's even worse than in running, isn't it? Because at least you can say, well, this might be a contributing factor. It's got to be nutrition for, for cycling. Exactly. And same for swimming and plenty of other sports that perhaps go overlooked. And it seems so obvious and so clear when you spell it out like that. But I think this isn't known about enough and we need to do more to spread these messages for awareness. So you talked about some of the um, the non-physical symptoms that you were noticing just the fogginess um perhaps obsession of uh, with certain with certain subjects what other mental uh symptoms might people either be noticing themselves or and, and i know we're going to come on to this later um noticing in their friends or their family members or their training partners Mm. I think a lot of athletes will start to suffer from low moods um, when their hormones become out of whack, um, depression, anxiety, any sort of mental um, problem that you can associate with this is usually related. Um, also just difficulty concentrating. Um, it's quite hard when you've experienced this brain fog to remain aware of everything going on and to remember things and stay focused. Um and also just perhaps irritability. Um, often it's hard to distinguish what's normal and abnormal when you're an athlete who's under pressure and experiences various stressful situations. But if things start to become overwhelming or easily um, irritated, that's when you know something isn't quite right. Did you ever notice that your sleep was disrupted at all? Mm, definitely. In, I did. Can, you, can you explain how that manifested itself for you? Mm. So I um, was experiencing high levels of cortisol, which are the stress hormone mm-hmm. um, and that made me sort of feel on edge quite often. And as I was trying to get to sleep at night, I would literally feel this hormone course, um, you know, going through my system and wouldn't know what it was. It wasn't very aware of my body at the time, but that was what would keep me awake. And then when I was awake, I was very easily, uh, when I was asleep, I was easily woken and mm. uh, I didn't realize the significance of any of this at the time. Did did you ever get that thing where you you're lying there trying to go to sleep, but you can feel your heart's not racing, but it feels like it's beating really strong, like somebody tapping on something all the time. Mm, yeah. yeah, and almost hear the heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, again, that's a stressful situation which can perpetuate this problem. Mm. And obviously, then when when you're not getting um, good quality, even if you get into bed for eight or nine hours. 
um, or more per night, if you're not getting good quality sleep during that time, then that has that that has knock-on effects, doesn't it, into other things like your ability to think straight, concentrate, decisions around food. Exactly. Yeah. And when you're sleeping, that's when you produce human growth hormone. And that's what helps you develop and make these adaptations, which slowly start dwindling when you're suffering from this problem. Mm. Did you, uh, as as much as you were trying, uh, and obviously with the encouragement of your teammates where you were supporting each other, um, did you ever find yourself just craving certain foods as well and having to give into that and like secretly getting a pizza ordered or having a big stash of chocolate in your cupboards. Uh, yeah, I did. But sadly were a number of times when I would lie in bed and feel so hungry that I didn't think I could get to sleep. And that's when I would go downstairs and see what I could find. And often this started in, in um, several months, if not years down the line, it started this episode of binge eating and mm. Of course, that was my body's natural response to this deprivation. But I felt incredibly guilty about that at the time. I couldn't make sense of why I had maintained such incredible self-control. And then all of a sudden it would overcome me and I just could not stop eating cereal or chocolate, as you say. Or Yeah, it was quite an extreme swing from one uh, way to the other. Were, were any of your teammates um, suffering equally? Um, at the time and was that something they kept to themselves or did that become a a group conversation point Mm, so interestingly um, when I was back in the UK I was at university with a particular athlete who also went to FSU and um, we had known about a pre-existing eating disorder and somebody had warned me that it would might be difficult if I were to live with this particular person and I had dismissed it. I, in from my perspective at the time, I was the least likely person to suffer from mm. low energy availability because I loved food and I never had a hang up about my body. Um, I was pretty naive at that point, and actually they were right. And living with others who have these preoccupations um, is incredibly hard and makes you reassess your own relationship with food. And I think that was perhaps the most triggering factor in my environment was being around um, people who were also restricting their intake. And it just gave me an entirely new perspective on how much food I needed, when I needed it. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, that was a pretty bad influence for me at the time. And at what point in in this whole process then did you start to notice that it was having an impact on your athletic performance? Yeah, it was months before I started to feel the initial symptoms mentally and physically. Um, I had, I guess I had managed to sustain this performance boost for a short period of time. And then um, I just could not seem to push through this fatigue and training. I wasn't adapting and that would start translating into races. And no matter how fit I had been beforehand, I just couldn't sustain that performance so yeah it was probably six to eight months after things started to go downhill so at that point then um there will be a lot of athletes who will think well if my performances aren't getting better even though i'm tired i need to train harder so did that become another vicious circle that you were sort of spiraling down into Oh, exactly. That's totally it. There were times when I was incredibly reluctant to take a rest day because I felt I had making up to do. I was anxious about doing less than anybody else in my training group and rest was the last thing I thought I needed. Mm. Um, So yeah, it's a really dangerous trap to fall into. Okay. So we talked earlier about um, 
if you are the coach of an athlete, if you are the parent of an athlete, if you're a supporter, so that's that other part of that support network, whether you're a training partner, maybe maybe you're a parent observing another athlete because um, you, you shouldn't, I don't think anybody should be afraid to either ask questions or speak up and, you know, um, but I think perhaps one, people are afraid to say something for fear of upsetting somebody and two, perhaps they don't know, they don't know if they're wrong um, so they may be afraid to say something there just in case they're making a mistake. And also perhaps people don't know where to go. Well, what am I doing? Should I be ta- should I be speaking to the authorities? It'll seem like I'm snitching on somebody if I if I say something. So there's a lots there's lots of good reasons why people won't say anything. But I think part of the education process here is is helping people to understand what are the steps that they should be taking, and how do you approach that with somebody? I mean, you you go along to a female in her late teens, early 20s and say, I think you're looking a bit thin, you know, you're not performing very well. And that can have, you know, that can go completely the wrong way, can't it? Exactly. Yeah. Just as you've explained, there are so many barriers to both the athlete for seeking help and somebody in their support team for helping them find it. And I think the most important thing is to try and catch issues like this early um, and approach the athlete as directly and supportively as possible. Um, But the timing has to be right. I think um, people are so afraid of getting the message wrong, but actually it's often when you try to approach the athlete that's important. And if that's in a confidential setting, that's really important. Um, Often I find a warm down with a teammate on their own or even the coach um, can be really good time to take on these conversations. Um, It's quite intimidating to sit someone down and question Mm -hmm. them and it's really important that the athlete doesn't feel accused of anything because in their mind, they're only doing what they think they should or need to do. So yeah, it's, it's just so important to get these conversations started early and not to be afraid of, of doing that. Um, and in terms of what to say, I think often it helps to focus on a particular um, occasion. Maybe the athlete has a, had a poor performance and a few days afterwards, you could maybe just suggest that, um, your concern that they might not be fueling properly and do they have the support that they need in order to do that um, rather than focusing on a, a particular weight or body composition because often it's not that's not reflective of their their health on the inside I've often wondered as a coach myself whether um, asking questions so trying to trying to help the athlete come to the conclusion themselves you know so if they're saying well I'm not performing as well as I went well um, a few weeks ago a few months ago or what is it do you think might be contributing to that you know have you up your training have you changed nutrition and see if it can go well I did change my nutrition okay now what, what have you changed about it oh well I've stopped doing this and I've stopped doing that okay do you think that's um, what made you what made you come to that decision oh well you know my coach said I was looking a bit chunky or that the you know, all the guests, the girls were below a certain body weight. So you, then you can start uncovering some things without, but it's, but it's with their help and they're coming to those conclusions themselves. Exactly. That is so essential that the individual is able to recognize the issue for themselves and understand what steps they need to take in order to affect a change for the positive direction. So if, if I was one of these people within that um, sort of support role, if you like, is do do Project Red S have a whole load of resources that I can go and find um, to help me understand a little bit more about the issue and think, oh, actually, I think I might be on something here now. I need to go down that. Or 
yeah, let's let's talk about that. Do you have those resources where people can up their education level on this particular subject? Yes, exactly. So I started this project and created the web resource because of a lack of consolidated information for athletes, parents, supporters and coaches. Um, there was no one specific place you could go to to find articles written by previous athletes or previous coaches or parents, um, scientific information that was slightly reduced to the layman's terms. Um, and I hope that this website provides everything that somebody supporting an athlete might need in order to help them um, and for the athletes themselves, some information about where they can go um, and how to inform themselves about the problem. And when, when I look at the team that you've got involved with this, you've obviously got a lot of expert advisors, but you've also got a large number of advocates. So what, what role do they play and why in particular are they supporting this project? Yeah, so the advocates are ever-growing and quite overwhelmingly so, but they are athletes who really support this cause. They have either suffered from Red S or seen others suffer from it and experience the effects of it directly or indirectly. And they want to help push for change and change the narrative on what we deem as healthy in sport. Um, and so they help me raise awareness. They help distribute educational materials and just fly the flag for positive role models in sport. Mm. Uh, it, it struck my mind that um, a friend of mine was a, a very well-known coach within triathlon. And when any new athletes came to his particular training group, he actually, um, as well as being their coach and setting all the sessions um, took a took a quite a parochial approach. Went round to visit them. I remember him. He, one of the athletes I was coaching directly went to work with this guy, and so we sort of had a team approach. And he went round to visit him and said, "Hey, look, I just want you to let you know this is the best place to go and get shopping. You know, it's easiest. It's just along here. I find it has most of what the athletes want. This is this is the easiest way to get to the pool. So it was." It, it, it was something around the environment rather than letting people try and figure it out for themselves, which when you go to somewhere new uh, and it's all overwhelming, that you, you end up going to the easiest place, which might be McDonald's because it's next door. Um, it's not necessarily the best, but you, but you don't figure out these other things until a bit later on, by which time the, the sort of, you know, the pieces can already be being put in place for poor, poor behavior patterns. Exactly. Yes. And whilst we're really keen to provide recovery resources, a big part of what we do is prevention as well. And just as you say, we want to empower athletes and coaches and supporters to understand this problem and how to prevent it just as much as we do want to help them recover from, from it. So I guess you could also identify particular pinch points when an athlete might end up um, going down this road inadvertently though so like changing training groups that, that so that might be a flag um particularly um young men and women going off to university um so you've got lots of different pressures there um mm -hmm. moving countries going to, particularly i mean you, at least you were in florida and they spoke they spoke english um, yeah. But if you imagine if you were going to university in France or something and you didn't speak the language and there was a huge different culture in terms of food, that, that would make things more difficult, wouldn't it? Mm. 
Yeah, exactly. And often I think these issues are common among people who start a career and want to figure out how to balance their sport as well. And all of a sudden they're facing new pressures um, on their time and energy. And it's incredibly common to just simply underestimate the energy demand of all of these activities mm. and unintentionally underfuel as well. Mm. Okay. So um let's you talked about clean eating. So I think clean eating's become a big a bit of a buzzword recently. I don't think anybody could really identify um one solid definition for clean eating. Um clearly in your group you'd identified it as anything that doesn't seem to advance our athletic um physique or anything that's got to go, and that included some of the more um little luxurious things that we might like to eat. Um, there's also something called orthorexia, which is just a, an unhealthy obsession with what you're eating and body shape. And there's this thing about chasing the perfect diet and they all seem to be mixed up in one there. So let, let's, if we can, Pippa, let's talk about those for a bit. You, you um, when we were talking about, about setting up this podcast, you said to me, well, maybe we should talk about what to do, what actions you can do as take as an individual if you think your clean eating has gone too far. Mm. So yes. Um, yeah. I think in today's society with all of the diet culture we're faced with oh. all of the time, it's incredibly easy to fall into these traps of thinking you need to eat a certain way. And um, I guess taking this moral high ground over how clean you can make your diet, which is really dangerous when you often rely on those extras um, to provide the calories to sustain your sport. Mm. So go on then. Let's 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 talk about some strategies. Let's get let's get down to brass tacks. Yeah. What can we eat? What should we be eating? You know, if we're thinking, well, um, can I have a burger occasionally? You know, is it okay to go to McDonald's and get some chips on an evening? You know, or do I need to uh, do I need to push those aside and make my own healthy chips? Yes. Well, I am not a dietitian or nutritionist, so I always um, refrain from giving dietary advice. But I think it's really important for anybody to try and maintain a balance. So if you are feeling like a burger and chips, then by all means, enjoy it. But, you know, it's everything in moderation, isn't it? And um, for me personally, the diet that I had as a 16, 17 year old um, who was just enjoying sport for the sake of enjoyment um, and being fed by my parents at home, that was the perfect athlete's diet. And that might have involved a bag of crisps and a penguin in my lunchbox. But for me, that was what sustained my um, performances. And so nowadays I tend to um, or, you know, maintain that kind of approach and just have what I want when I want it and really rely on my intuition, um, which doesn't play a role for everyone. It's completely individual and some people need more guidance than others. But I think if you just have everything in moderation, you can't go too far wrong. So I had an interesting conversation with somebody a few years back. Um, Alistair and Johnny Brownlee, as we know, very successful triathletes. Um, I think that Alistair had just won the gold in London and they posted on Instagram a photograph of their shopping bags and some of the food, you know, and it was, there was three of three of the, there was three of them living in this house, Alistair, Johnny, and one other triathlete. So you can imagine that feeding three young men that were training 40 hours a week um, meant bringing a virtual minibus full of, uh, of food and shopping bags back to the house. And so they were posting stuff and then 
um, Alistair would say, oh, yeah, Mrs. So-and-so who lives next door loves making cakes. And so whenever we come back from a race, there's a lovely chocolate cake or a fudge cake or a fruit cake or something waiting for us, you know, and she's really proud of her neighbours and wanted to celebrate. Um, And there was... it was a mix of people saying, well, you're supposed to be performance athletes. Should you really be eating that stuff? And then other people going, wow, if you're training that much, you probably need to eat everything you can get your hands on. And I remember chatting with their coach, Malcolm Brown, and, and Malcolm said, look, it's stressful enough doing 30 or 40 hours of training a week. And if you look at the performances at that time, they were pretty much dominant in the world of, of triathlon. Right. So clearly it's not impacting their performance at all. And why would you add another stress by having them focus on chasing that perfect diet? Because we don't need, we need to minimize the stress. We don't need to keep adding to it and they've got enough already. Exactly. Yeah. And from my perspective, at least that's far more likely to contribute to their performances than it would have to take away from it. And um, the best thing you can do is make sure you're fueling enough and not to have to worry too much about the macronutrients and micronutrients, even at the highest level when you're competing and training that many hours. Um, It's just essential to get those key meals in. Yeah, and I, I did then have a conversation with a sports nutritionist who said, ah, yes, but how much better could they have been? And I'm like, well, when you've won a gold medal, how you, do you need to win by five minutes or five seconds? It doesn't matter. You still get the same medal. And he said, yeah, but maybe maybe they wouldn't have been injured so much. I'm like, well, yeah, but maybe that was the training. You, there's so many confounding factors in there. You can't put it on one. Now, maybe as as athletes get older, you maybe do need a more precise approach to nutrition as, as your body requires different things. But for most people in their 30s, that's still not a consideration, is it? I don't think. No, exactly. And I think there is this pressure for all athletes to try and emulate the diet of an elite. And often that's really unhelpful because they have a completely different lifestyle. Maybe the Brownlee brothers focus only on training and they can put their feet up for the rest of the day, but your average Joe has to go mm. to work. That requires more energy. So it's dangerous to make these comparisons, I, I think. Yeah. And in, in fairness to what you said there, Pippa, the majority of people who are listening to this will have other challenges in their life. You know, maybe they are a recreational athlete, they've got two children um, and a partner, They need to, somebody needs to take responsibility for shopping, for preparing the food, for getting up in the morning, for making sure everybody's got their food for the day. Uh, it, it's easy to forget something or overlook something, isn't it? Um, exactly. You know, so it's, it's stressful. So I think what we're saying here is um, the perfect diet doesn't exist in terms of you should eat this and you shouldn't eat that, but it does exist in terms of um, if you're in good health and you're able to perform not just as an athlete, but more importantly, as a human being, you know, as a female, you, you, your monthly cycle is regular and, and, and normal, that you are able to think correctly, that you sleep well, that you're not getting ill all the time. Then if that's happening and you, you know, you're maintaining what we consider a healthy um, physical shape, then that is the perfect diet for you. And it's, and it is very much individual. We've not talked about eating philosophies there, whether you want to eat vegan because you've got some, um, you know, some, some other um, ethical concerns, but it's the diet that suits you best in you, in your particular environment, isn't it? And allows you to live healthily as a human being for an extended period of time, sustained period of time. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that that looks balanced mentally and physically, Um, because even if, you know, you think you're eating a balanced diet physically and maybe you are if you're still depriving yourself of the things that you want and the things that you enjoy then that isn't necessarily healthy as well so yeah it's it's a total individual approach um and i wish more athletes spoke out about that I do find also that if you're too fastidious with your diet, you quickly become unpopular with your friends when they're making a dinner party. Like, oh, yeah, um, Simon uh, Simon always wants to ch- choose this and have that off the menu. He's just no fun. So we won't invite him to this thing. Like, it gets you can choose what you like to eat when you're eating on your own, can't you? Exactly. And yeah, that's another stress source when your friends don't want you around because you're too preoccupied with food. Yeah, I, I do remember once we were in this lovely restaurant in America and uh, the um, the maitre d' was explaining to us what was on the menu board and I said to him um, so is it grass-fed beef or corn-fed beef then and he said I'll just go and check so and he came back in uh, a typical in uh, as is fairly typical in the United States he said it's corn-fed beef I said I'd like the uh, I think I'll have the salmon please and one of my friends said is that grass-fed salmon <laughs> right. and I, I mean this was uh, this was six years ago i've not lived it down since about the grass-fed beef although you know you do see it more popularly now on on the menu but um my friends tend to roll their eyes a little bit sometimes when i'm going through the menu (laughs) understandable um let's talk about social media here i mean i mean how do we escape it? it it's it pervades everybody's life these days and i guess when you're young and that's how people communicate it's really difficult to avoid um, those messages that are coming across and you said that um, when you were in Florida um, that was there then and it's it, it it's growing isn't it and the the amount of stuff that's out there whether it's a whether it's credible fact or whether it's opinion which is more destructive um, it, it's just it's almost impossible to avoid so um, how do you manage social media to to make sure you don't fall into these sort of traps Mm. Well, yes, you're right. It is everywhere. And often the messages we absorb aren't even conscious. They're subliminal. And it can be really hard to sift out what is a credible source of nutritional information and what isn't. Um, And also the comparison factor. You're able to see what an elite athlete might be doing or someone you look up to. um, And you're able to see what other regular exercises are doing, too. And it's so easy to compare what you're doing with, with them and I just think if you were able to find some positive role models to follow, um, it's really important to stick to them and to remove any source of information that you feel is doing you harm mentally or physically um, by copying or feeling the need to compare yourself against them just to filter them out. And um, you can actually use some of the Instagram settings now to remove advertisements that you might find triggering um Mm -hmm. and i think it's important for athletes with this predisposition to being influenced by others um to look into that do you have any particular sources of information that you like to go to regularly now for for credible information and factually correct 
Yes. Well, I tend to follow dietitians that I know and trust, mm-hmm. um, of which there are a few out there, but also um, athletes who I think are spreading positive messages. Um, people like Laura Waitman, Ailish McColgan, they're females. Um, Jake Riley, who is an Olympic US marathon runner who has shared his struggle with Red S openly and now works to provide positive messages. Um, so just people who are aware of these pitfalls that are so easy to fall into and might help counteract those messages with a more helpful approach to for diet and training. Can you, can you give a name check to some of the nutritionists or dietitians that you uh, like to follow? Because we can post those on the um, show notes. Yes. So there is um, Alex Cook in the UK, um, Reena McGregor, who's a well-known dietitian that specializes in Red S. Um, there's some doctors. Um, Amal Hassan is a brilliant medical doctor who spreads awareness of these um, common traps as well. And Dr. Nikki Key, uh, Dr. Rebecca Robinson is fantastic. She's based up north as well and um, does a great job in promoting positive messages. Um, there are others I'm struggling to think of off the top of my head. Um, but in America, there's Lindsay Cortez, um, who again is really clued up on these things. And I think it's really important to surround yourself with, with the people who know best. I I think, um, what's really important to also for athletes, you talked about it a little bit earlier about the, the trends in at the moment for certain dietary philosophy so keto is very popular at the moment you see a lot of people go on social media saying i've lost loads of weight like this um i'd 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 be interested to know for how many people that was sustainable i mean it's a restrictive diet and when you restrict your calorie intake you're going to lose weight that's that's fairly obvious some um i'd like to also know you know see what the instagram posts are like of people who tried keto and failed because most people only post about the successes don't they or things that work wonderful for them um but but for me as a coach i I would say to any athlete that wants to go down a particular avenue of eating is to really research what is going to happen not and whether it's sustainable for you with your with your lifestyle with your athletic pursuits and with your cultural um, environment and yeah. you know and, and try and find some people for whom it hasn't worked you know people who tried it out for a couple of months and then just thought well it, it's not working because mm-hmm. those are stresses you know keto a keto diet is incredibly stressful and most of the people that do well on it are people who have to be on it for medical reasons and it's like because the alternative not being on it is far worse for them um but i just think you need to do your research before you decide to follow a particular dietary uh, methodology mm, exactly and also to be careful about which sources you choose to get that research information from because yes there will be hundreds of people on the internet who promote um, a keto diet and actually they might not be informed enough about female physiology and the mm. detrimental impact that can have on women in particular yeah there's uh, um, stacy sims has done quite a bit about um, low carb high fat now i tried that and it worked well for me for a um for a few months um but I, somebody asked me about it yesterday i did notice that i was having some of those cravings occasionally where i would sort of overdo the amount of exercise i'd done and perhaps not eat well enough and then i just started piling in the food and you know from all sources so in the end that was probably less beneficial to me um and stacy sims has been keen to point out that 
with the menstrual cycle and, you know, changing hormones throughout the month and um, what intermittent fasting does and low carbohydrate on the female metabolism. It's, it's not necessarily the same as it is for men. And so, but we don't see many females posting about this. There's probably a reason for that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I think women are almost um, at most risk of these traps because of historically lots of nutritional information has been simply based on science conducted on men, as Stacey points out. And that's really harmful because women have a completely unique physiology that may require more carbohydrates, um, doesn't respond well to fasted training um, and has other nuances that we all need to be better informed about. Mm. One of the things you mentioned earlier also was about culture in sports. Do, do you think that's something we need to discuss? Because there are definitely certain sports that have been in the news recently around this body image, body type, um, and certain endurance sports also where weight is seen to be a crucial factor in success. You know, I, I think um, Tyler Hamilton talks a lot about it in his book when he's um, talking about Dr. Ferrari, who we shouldn't mention in too glowing of terms, but he talks about power to weight, Tyler, power to weight. And he has this figure that they're all trying to get down to in order to put themselves in the right place for winning the Tour de France. Um, mm, yeah. So, yeah, sports culture. Yes, it's um, it's tricky because, of course, in sports like cycling and jockeying and um, racing driving, there is um, an emphasis on weight and for good reason, you know, just as you shouldn't be underweight. You also don't want to be overweight in order to perform at the best of your ability. Um, but it concerns me when the messaging on how to achieve that weight is a little off. And that is incredibly common and is often what causes these harmful habits and behaviors. Um, so yes, you know, the culture does need to change in terms of this one size fits all approach and this idea that athletes have a certain body type. Um, I certainly have heard more than a num numerous times that I look like a runner or I look like a certain type of runner and mm. it's not that helpful. You know, everybody looks different and some runners are way better than others and have a completely different somatotype. So yes, we have to be careful not to um, adopt these cultural norms that are so easily um, banded around. Anybody who's got to this point in the podcast might think we've been painting a very black picture about this uh, situation, Pippa, but it's it's not like that, is it? There's lots of positive to come out of this. If, if not least is the fact that we're making people more aware of it and we're educating people so that we can keep athletes healthy and performing at the best. So let's, let's think of some of the positives to finish on because I, I always and, and always like people to, to go away from um, a podcast with, with somebody um, like yourself thinking, right, I've learned something today and I've got a couple of action points that I can um, activate for myself or for somebody else. So let's, let's, let's spend five minutes talking about real positive stuff. Mm. Well, I think the best thing about this problem for me is that it doesn't need to exist. Um, just as we were talking about sports culture and this perpetuation that we need to eat or look or train a certain way, um, you really don't have to. You All you need to do is listen to your body, um, listen to it when it's telling you that something's not right or that you may have overdone it or that you're craving a certain food or food group. Um, the best thing we can do is inform ourselves about what's right for us. And that's 
should be our main priority. Um, and also that if you may have fallen down some of these traps um, and found yourself in a state of red S, there is hope you can recover from this. And you can't say that about all mental and physical conditions. So as long as we are able to spread awareness, um, help contribute to preventing this problem from arising in the first place, and then signpost athletes towards the appropriate support resources, it's mm. not such a bleak picture after all. Um, do we have a do we have some action points that people can take away then? Do you think um, from well, what we've from, from what we've chatted about today? Yeah, so I think from a personal perspective, I'd be thrilled if someone wanted to visit our website www.red-s.com um, and hopefully pick up some tips or useful information on there. Um, and also, I guess the overwhelming takeaway here would just be to find out what works for you, surround yourself with people who believe the same thing um, and inform yourself about potential pitfalls and how to avoid them. It's been great chatting with you. Um, I really appreciate what you're doing to bring this to the awareness of more people. I, I like you. The reason, I, um, the reason I reached out to you was because I think it's a, a, a topic that we shouldn't be afraid to chat about and that more of us need to be educated and to speak about so thank you for sharing that with me and we will share all of those links as many as we can on the show notes so if, if you are interested in either reaching out to Pippa or one of the team or one of the advocates then um, as Pippa said please go to the website and do that and I suppose that the, the other message is if you think that this is you if anything here resonates please don't be afraid to talk to somebody and and you know as she said um it's not too late to get help and you can definitely make a full recovery as long as you do something positive about it. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You're most welcome. Thank you, Pippa. Thanks again to Pippa for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. And don't forget to look for that link in the show notes so that you can download your free mobility program. That's all for now. Have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.